This is Coach Tim Brown, your host of Beer Baller Podcast. I'm excited to begin season two with our special guest, Bishop Timothy Joseph Clark of the First Church of God in Columbus, Ohio. At the recent Beer Baller Live event, Bishop Clark and I talked about generational leadership lessons from his over 40 years as pastor of the First Church of God. Enjoy the episode. Before we get started, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Hey there, Clark Kellogg here. Building a legacy usually involves meeting the unique needs of others and being part of something bigger than yourself. That's why I love First Merchants Bank. First Merchants believes that helping communities prosper means more than just providing banking services. It means offering accessible financial education, expanded access to home ownership, and partnerships with local nonprofits to help raise up neighborhoods and lift families out of financial hardship. For resources and tools available to you, visit www.firstmerchants.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. So our first guest today is uh, Bishop Timothy Joseph Clark. Uh, he's a, he, he was called to ministry in January of 1974. Bishop Clark served as associate minister at the First Church of God in his hometown of Far Rockaway, New York, under membership of the late uh, Dr. James E. Craig. Bishop Clark began his pastoral at York Avenue Church of God in Warren, Ohio, in 1977. He was called here to Columbus, Ohio, in 1981, and he began his pastor at the First Church of God here in Columbus in February 1982. Uh, as I was reading through Bishop's bio, he, he's, he loves education. He loves learning. Doctor's degree, master's degree, a certificate of theology. But he also loves that next generation, getting that opportunity to, to be educated. I think the church gives out at least $50,000, at least $50,000 every year. <laughs> at least $50,000 every year to help young people continue in that education. But if you see him on the streets, everybody is... Uh, Everybody's son, how you doing, son? Everybody's daughter, you know, everybody bro, you know, just wherever you see him at. And that's the spirit of Bishop Clark. And so I wanted to talk to him today about, about his legacy. So, Bishop, can let's go back in time. Take us back to New York. Take us back. I know we're in Columbus, Ohio now, but take us back to growing up and what you saw. You always talk about uh, Daddy Craig. and those. What, what did you see that wanted you to be involved in ministry? First of all, let me say how glad I am to be here with you. Um, you and I uh, this morning are at home. Uh, so uh, sort of like the Jets the other night, <laughs> we, have the, we have the home field advantage. <laughs> and uh, bef- before, I, before I go into that, um, when I walked in the room today, the first person I saw, not ironically, providentially, uh, was my brother, Adam Troy. Mm -hmm. And uh, this morning, on my way here and in my office, I thought about the fact that I would be up here presenting, and I thought about the fact that this is the first gathering that I've been in, particularly with men, since the passing of his dad. But in a way, he was all, everybody called him Pop Troy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I want to ask if we can, Mm -hmm. just for a moment, uh, bow our heads in in remembrance of a man who wasn't, I don't think Pop Troy was five foot ten, but he was a giant in every sense of the word. And our city is better because of Leon L. Troy. So would you bow your head? Yeah, you can applaud. <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah. And so when I saw uh, Adam, I thought, wow, Pop's been on my mind all morning. So would you, let's bow our heads in a moment and give thanks to God for him. Whenever he would talk, he would always end it by saying, I got up this morning and said, Leon L. Troy reporting for duty. Thank you that he left us that legacy. And as men, as Christians, help us to always say to you, here I am reporting for duty and use us to your glory. Men and women, all of us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow. Um, you want to talk about New York. I was teasing Harvey um, earlier, and um, we were talking about the fact that I don't allow people from New York to join this church. Uh, Brother Lindsay, the two Brother Lindsays, we were teasing about that uh, because everybody has a past. And you don't you don't want it to catch up with you. <laughs> so I, so if I see somebody from New York, I say, go across the street. New birth is a great church. <laughs> um, I grew up in New York. Um, I was born in Brooklyn, Kings County Hospital, um, lived in Far Rockaway. Uh, that's where our homestead was. Our grandparents were there. So all of us, my grandparents had three girls and um, almost all of their grandchildren lived in the house with them. They really raised us. Uh, my grandfather passed uh, August 1962, and that was a real seminal moment in my life because my mom and dad were never married, so my dad never lived with us. I never, I knew him and uh, interacted with him, but he wasn't in our home. And so my grandfather was really the first father figure that I had on a regular daily basis. He passed away in August of 1962. And so my grandmother, our grandmother, really helped to raise all of their grandchildren. So I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Far Rockaway. Our mother worked for Columbia University School of Social Work. So um, we moved to Manhattan, uh, what is commonly called Columbia Heights, but it's really Harlem. And uh, so we lived there, 113th Street. And um, so I grew up, I'm a native New Yorker, grew up in New York all of my life. People talk about New York, um, and I had the opportunity to live in many of the boroughs of New York, and New York does have its issues. New York does have, um, as does any large city, um, its opportunities for trouble. Uh, I guess it's more prolific, more pronounced in a city like New York. Dr. Gardner Taylor of Sainted Memory used to call New York Baghdad on the Hudson. And, uh, and so I guess there's a lot you can get into. But I had several things um, that really helped me, Brother Tim. Uh, first of all, my home, uh, my grandmother, but also my mom and my two aunts. That was the first thing. They instilled in all of us a real Christian sense of not only loving God, but knowing God knowing God for yourself. The second thing I had was a strong church community. 
And I was telling uh, brother, the two brother Lindsay's and, uh, and uh, sharing with them that my, my childhood pastor, you referenced him, Dad Cray, was like my father. I called him Dad. And he was really like my father. But there were other men in that congregation and in that community who nurtured me and modeled for me ministry. So I had family, home, and then I had the church and then school. Um, teachers uh, who saw in me something that at times I didn't see in myself. I never will forget, uh, one of my science teachers said to me one day, he said, Tim, Always remember, with gifts and power come responsibilities. I never forgot that. He said, you're so gifted and you have so much to offer, but with that comes responsibilities. And if you squander it, then you're going to be held accountable for that. So growing up in New York, um, I had all the chances to do everything. Unfortunately, I had two cousins grew up with me, in the same house with me, same parents, same schools, same church. Both of them ended up on drugs. Uh, Both of them died early because of drugs. I always think about them, Derek and Barry. I always think about them uh, because they were both older than me, which means they had my grandfather longer, They had exposure to our family longer. They had the church longer. They had the community longer, but they made decisions that uh, negatively, dramatically negatively impacted their lives. In a way, their lives and their deaths really challenged me that I could do better, I could be better, that there was more for me. And uh, so I took that and I tried to use that as motivation and impetus to rise above some of the pathological behavior and dysfunction that I saw around me. Yeah. Uh, You're truly a generational leader. And I, uh, 40 years, and as I was looking through your bio, you broke it down into year, into decades. And you titled that first decade, Call to Lead the People. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that first decade at, here in Columbus at First yeah, Church? Yeah. Um, here's what I believe. Um, I believe God has purpose and plan for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans. Some translations say, I know the thoughts that I have for you, thoughts of good, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. I, I believe that. Um, that same Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, records but pace that um, God said to him at a very early stage in his life, before you were born, I knew you. Before you were conceived, I ordained you. I literally placed my hand on you and ordained you, anointed and appointed you to be a prophet. And so I look back on my life and I realize that uh, those were seasons and eras in my life that God used. Um, And I could tell you a great story about my mother, but we don't have time for it right now. But it was out of something she told me on my 18th birthday that helped me understand the direction and the trajectory of my life. 
and it transformed how I saw myself. I'm going to preach on this a little bit on Sunday, so shout when you hear it like you didn't hear it today. And all you other first churches, act like, wow, that was powerful. Um, but it changed the trajectory of my life. And, and it took me, I think, to the other eras and epochs that represent my life. And so when I came here to a church of less than 100 people, that when I came to Columbus, February 1980, second Sunday in February 1982, on the corner of Wilson and Fair, there were less than 100 people who were members of this church. And uh, from that very, 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 one more time, very small beginning, uh, God just continued to multiply our ministry. But I, I identified that decade as called to the people because no one in the city knew me. No one in the city knew where First Church was. Some people are sort of like um, in, in, in the New Testament where uh, they ask the people, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we never heard if there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> if people had said, do you know where First Church is? They would have said, we've never heard of First Church. Uh, and so I was called to shepherd less than 100 people, but to be faithful in that. And, and here's what I believe. If you can't be, two things, I, I believe two things mark you for promotion. First of all, being faithful in and over a little. Y'all didn't say nothing. Now he shouldn't have to put, he shouldn't have to even do that. <laughs> that should be spontaneous. Faithful over a little. I tell young pastors, Bishop Forbes, all the time, who are clamoring for mega churches, you don't qualify to be mega until you can be faithful with a few. If you can't love a few, shepherd a few, you know, care for a few, why would God entrust to us more when he can't trust us with a little? I tell couples, why do you want a 14-room house and you can't keep your apartment clean? <laughs> Come on, y'all. Why would God do that? Why would God give you a luxury car and you don't ever wash the hoopty you got? <laughs> you have to be faithful over a little. Faithful. So, so you could not beat me pastoring my 70 folk. I tell people, at first, I don't say it anymore now, but uh, some years ago I used to tell folk at First Church, child, you think I'm preaching now, you should have seen me preaching in that empty building. <laughs> child, I was walking pews and <laughs> swinging from the chandelier. I got the picture. <laughs> he got the <laughs> Child, listen, I was preaching like it was full. Like it was full. Here's why. Because... And I say this to entrepreneurs as well as to preachers. You preach and you lead towards what you see, not what you have. Pastor Mike, did you get it? What you see in the spirit, what God showed you, what God said to you. The time to start leading a thousand is not when the thousand come. 
The time to start leading a thousand is when you got 50. Because you're developing your capacity for a thousand. So that when the thousand started coming, I didn't have a nervous breakdown or burnout. Okay, now, see, y'all getting quiet. I, I look at preachers now, you know, on Facebook. Oh, I'm resigning. I'm burning out. My God, what? Okay, here's Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley. Those men on horseback didn't burn out. You driving a Cadillac and you burning out, please. <laughs> Come on, you take a vacation to, to Aruba and you burning out. Paul didn't burn out and he was in jail half the time. I think preachers got to get over themselves. Come on, we got to stop this. And I think business people do too. You know, you can't start a business and go buy you a Bentley. Not the first year. Come on, you, come on, you got to drive, you got to drive, I don't, don't want to call the name of a car because some of y'all may have driven here in it, but you can't drive a car. <laughs> I'm trying to think of uh, uh, a geoprism. <laughs> I don't think I saw any of those on the parking lot. And if, here's the thing. If you can't drive a prism, you don't qualify to drive a Bentley. Here's why. I know this is more than what you bargained for. But, but, but here's why. Because there's a point where you have to realize you are bigger and more than anything you have. I want you to hear me. I, I said to somebody, Brother Lindsay, um, a few years ago, I said, you know, I saw, I forget, it might have been a Suburban. And I said, I really like it. I said, I think I'm going to buy me a Suburban. And they said, you can't buy no Suburban. I said, why? They said, you Bishop Clark, you can't buy a Suburban. I said, but I want a Suburban. You can't. And I said, listen, calm down, first of all. I said, calm down. I said, here's what you don't understand. If I get a Suburban, I promise you, 15 preachers gonna go buy one. <laughs> 30 folk in First Church gonna go buy one. Because the car doesn't make me, I make the car. <laughs> are y'all in the room with me? I could show up in a Geo Prism and next month it'll be the most popular car among black preachers. Because you have to know your own value. So I didn't feel any less of myself in Wilson, at Wilson in fear, pastoring less than 100 than I feel right now. I don't. The only reason I have thousands is because I was faithful every Sunday, every Wednesday with less than 100. So, so before I was called to the city and before I became the city pastor and before I had lunch with the governor and went to the White House under four presidents and before any of that, I was a faithful shepherd to a handful of folk. So, my, so I, marked, I marked my life by that first decade and the first decade qualifies me for everything else I'm doing. Amen, amen, amen. Let's talk about that second 10 years from 1992 to 2002. And you, you entitled that Coming Out of the Wilderness. Yes, sir. And some of the highlights in that, um, you began the TV, radio ministry, 
Uh, you were seeking, casting new vision, seeking men in the church. Seeking men in the church, seeking families and reaching the least and the lowest. And during that time, that's when you became, you were becoming a city pastor. Everybody called on Bishop Clark. You need something, Bishop Clark, to say. Talk about those years. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. The, the um, Coming out the wilderness is not my statement. Uh, Bishop Forbes' nephew, uh, my first Sunday in this, not this church, Wilson and Fair, the, the, this will show you everything you need to know about my first initial times here. The church, the pastor's office was in the basement of the church across a little hall from the men's bathroom. That was my chairman of our deacon's ministry, Henry, will tell you that that's where my office was in the basement. In the words of Flip Wilson, in the corner, in the dark. <laughs> across from the men's bathroom. And, um, but I would spend hours in there. In fact, there are days, I, I think I told Pastor Mike Young this, there are days I look back on that and wish for them. Nobody knew me. The phone never rang. So I had uninterrupted hours to study and pray and, and prepare vision. Because once you start growing, you lose that a lot. So, so it was in that. So, my first Sunday here, I came up out the office, and uh, the late deacon James Melvin Bowman. This building, this Family Life Center's name for Deacon James Melvin Bowman and uh, Trustee Willie Gaddis. That's his son and grandson sitting over there. That's who this building is. It's Bowman Gaddis Family Life Center. The late deacon James Melvin Bowman uh, was waiting for me at the door. And he said, come on, I'm going to take you upstairs to the sanctuary. So came out of my office, walked through the basement, climbed some steps. To my left was what was the nursery. In front of me was a door that looked into the overflow. To the right was this little door that you literally had to duck to get in to go up into the pulpit. So they've got, they've got the door open looking Henry into the overflow. And all the seats are turned facing the sanctuary. Now, ain't nobody in them, but they all turn facing the sanctuary. And James Melvin Bowman, Uncle Jim, looked at me. He said, uh, how long before you fill it up? I said, but Bowman, I, I don't know how long it's going to take me to fill it up. And then he said these words. He said, I don't care what you have to do. Just get us out the wilderness. And he walked through the door and went in the sanctuary. So that, that, that was the decade of getting out the wilderness, um, of finding a promised land, a Rehoboth, where God makes room for you. I want to say to businessmen and women and to clergy, um, God has a Rehoboth for you. I know right now you feel like the sons of the prophet, um, the place where we dwell is too tight for us. But there's a Rehoboth for you. There's a place where God makes room for you. And you don't, and please hear my heart, whether an entrepreneur or preacher, listen to me, and you don't have to cut anybody down to get your room. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. 
And um, out of that decade, I tease people, there was a period of time, uh, probably 1982 to uh, 92, 93, when I couldn't buy a member. I couldn't buy one. I could have stood on the corner of Wilson and Fair, handed out $20 bills, and asked for come to my church. They'd have told me, keep your money, Rev. I ain't coming. <laughs> I couldn't buy a member. This church, I want to tell you, it was church growth in reverse. People stayed away by droves. <laughs> People stayed away by the thousands. I couldn't grow. I couldn't get anybody. But I kept plowing, and I kept sowing, and I kept preaching, and I kept pastoring, and I kept loving these folk, and I kept believing. And literally, this is no lie, no preacher hyperbole. One Sunday, the church was empty almost. Same folk who were here when I came. Now, mind you, we're talking seven years. We're talking, we we ain't talking 20 minutes, seven years. One day, one Sunday is empty, and it seems to me as if the next Sunday we have to have the deacons get up to give their seats so people can sit down. And all those chairs I told you were turned facing the sanctuary that I told them turn back around. We had to, we filled that overflow up, and it kept going from there. But it wasn't overnight. I, I'm scared of overnight stuff. Wild mushrooms that are poison and weeds grow overnight. If, I, I think if you want to last, you got you to go deep and you got to grow up. And you can only grow up to the degree your roots go deep. That's the key. Third 10 years. Here we go. <laughs> so From, now we're at year 30. Year 30. Oh, wow. Year 30. Wow. wow. Year 30. It feels like it went that fast. <laughs> <laughs> 2002 to 2012, conquering new territory, expanding the boundaries, establishing new territories, purchasing 124 acres of land, building new buildings, establishing the Brim Fellowship, planning pastors. Let's talk about that decade. Yeah. It, it, well, let me say this. Oh, I enjoyed, and I know some of y'all won't believe this, I enjoyed every decade. Now, I know I'm strange, but I'm from New York. I, I enjoyed every decade. I enjoyed the season of less than 100 members. And, and let me tell you why. I, well, let me say this. The Murrays, and maybe I'd give Deacon Ernest Williams, but Ernest wasn't saved when I came. Remember, he had left the church. He got saved when I came. So probably the Murrays are the only people who were adults when I came who are still living. I have buried a whole church. I have buried everybody that called me. Everybody. I never go anywhere in this city. It's the most amazing, touching, and in some ways painful thing. I never go anywhere in this city to a meeting to preach that I don't look around and think, Sister Zelma Neal used to live over there. Oh, I look on the south side 
Mom and Pop Chapman used to live over there. I knew where every member lived. I was in their homes. I went to see them in the hospital. I knew their families. I, I loved that season. Now, um, we have, what, 35, 40 funerals a year here? We've had five in the last week. Um, so we bury people at a rapid rate. A church this size, that's going to happen. And um, what amazes me and what hurts me, because I'm a pastor at heart, is I don't get to do that anymore. I, I, I don't get the hands-on with the people I used to have. I enjoyed the first 10. I enjoyed the second. And I enjoyed the third decade of ministry. It was exciting. We brought on staff. We were growing tremendously. We were having multiple services. We were breaking every law. Folk were double part. Here's how I knew it was the hand of God. Wilson and Fair, people would have their cars broken into and come back the next Sunday. <laughs> in the snow, people would walk four or five blocks in the snow to sit in the narthex. And so that's how we bought this land and that's how we started building here. I, I don't look at that third decade and think, wow, that was the best. No, I look at that first one and say, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I, I cut my leadership teeth on that. It toughened me up. It made me a leader. It made me a, I couldn't do the 30 if I hadn't done the first 10. If I hadn't let the first 10 shape me and mold me. So by the time the third came, boy, I was, I, here's what I tell people. And it's, it's a business axiom and it's a church axiom. You will never work as hard to break a hundred members in all of your life. That first hundred is the hardest number to break. Right after that is 200. You're going to work hard, buddy. You're going to work hard. You're gonna, I tell you, I had less than 100, and it took me seven years to break that. Because that's hard work. It's hard work. Um, and, and so once you break the 100, then you get 200, then you get 250, then you get 350. Once you get 500, 700, it's like money. It's compound interest. Folk are nosy. <laughs> Hey, hey, Rick, son, folk are nosy. They see all them cars. What's going on in that church? Th th that's the only reason they show up, because they nosy. <laughs> but if you've got something to offer them, come on, nosy will bring them. The word will keep them. Are you in the room with me? And, and so, so the, 30, the, third, the third decade, my 30th year, was exciting, man. I just... I had a ball bringing on staff and growing. And I love the smell of sawdust because I'm a builder. If you build it, I'll come and stand around, act like it's my church. <laughs> I'll be showing when Bishop Dickerson brought Ebenezer. I brought so many folk down there, I was giving tours. <laughs> because I celebrate when a church is growing. If a pastor's building, I'm his biggest cheerleader. Because building, I'm a builder. Are you? I'm a builder. And anything you are, when you see it, it resonates with you. Come on, talk back to me. Are you in the room with me? 
And you never, you ne- that's why, that's why the Lindsay men, father and son, can sit here. I bet, in fact, when I hugged senior brother Lindsay, he mentioned Daryl Sanders to me. Daryl, some of y'all may, well, probably none of y'all, you remember Daryl Sanders? You Sure, pastored up in, uh, was that Powell? Right, pastored up there. He's retired, played for Detroit, played for Ohio State University, had his own, he had a Cadillac dealership, right? Now watch this. Lindsay is one of the biggest franchises of automobiles in this area. And yet he's friends with Daryl Sanders because when you are walking in your purpose, folk are never a threat to you. When, when, when Bishop Kenny Moore was first, when I first came here and New Birth was a small church, they would do their baptism services in this church. And you don't let Kenny do that. His folk, go, your folk going to go over there. So, and, see how quiet y'all got? And, what if they do? <laughs> Is that a Bible teaching church? Are they still in the kingdom? We pray for those churches. Nothing excites me more than what God is doing with Pastor Mike and Pastor Rick. Nothing excites me more to see the next generation of pastors digging out churches and growing. Here's why. Here's why. I'm old now. I had my day. My day lasted a long time, a long time. I know I'm not gonna be around forever. I want there to be strong churches. Rich Nathan and I, dearest of friends, and um, we talk all the time about that, this idea of legacy, of, of passing the baton, of knowing when to go. We, I was teasing about the Jets. I hope Aaron Rodgers doesn't come back. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't. I, I, I think um, that um, Tom Brady stayed too long. Preachers, athletes, actors never know when to sit down. Never. They never know. Preachers never know when to sit down. Athletes never know when to hang it up. Actors never know that's your last applause. And as a result, we stay in the way of the next generation. And that's sad. So yeah, I enjoyed the third decade. Those those were great years. Yeah. That brings us to today, uh, the the fourth 10 years, uh, (laughs) 2012 and above the and that, that was labeled the uh, claiming the promises, yeah. claiming the promises, remodeled the sanctuary, uh, elevated to national and international leadership and exposure. And this last one really touched my heart was economic stability. Yeah. I mean, how important that is, economic stability, you know, um, yeah. being there. Can you speak to that? Where are you going? Yeah. Um, I want to say something. I hope, I hope you, how can I say this? I hope you know my heart and I hope the way I've walked among you in this city 
has given me, in the words of, where's Dokes? In the words, hey, bro, Dokes, in the words of John Maxwell, enough change in my pocket to say this. All right? Um, Deacon Holloway, both of you are Maxwell School graduates. One of the, well, let me say it this way. When Dr. King was assassinated April 4th, 1968, in front of room 306 at the Lorraine Motel, he was in Memphis in support of striking garbage workers. The theme of that march, if you see pictures of it, are black sanitation workers with what we used to call sandwich signs, front and back, that simply said, I am a man. Because garbage workers in Memphis and throughout the country were often treated like a commodity and not a person. Dr. King almost didn't go to Memphis because they were in the midst of planning the Poor People's Campaign, which was to be another, not march on Washington, but a live-in in Washington. They were literally going to set up what they were going to call Resurrection City, and people were going to live in tents in front of the Lincoln Memorial where 1963 Dr. King had done his I Have a Dream speech. When Dr. King was shot in the neck, spinal cord, cord severed, his jaw ripped from his, from his body, and he fell back on that balcony. He was shifting from mere civil rights to economic parity. Because Dr. King understood just riding on the bus is not enough. You got to be able to own a bus company. Just eating in a restaurant isn't enough. You've got to be able to be a restaurant owner. Staying in a hotel is nice, but what's better is owning a hotel. Two things mark the final days of Dr. King's life. His coming out against the war in Vietnam and his push for economic parity. I don't think we've ever fully answered that. The disparity between blacks and whites, men and women in this country is still atrocious. On the most basic numbers, women probably make 30% less than men. Isn't it about, what, 60, 30, maybe? Blacks, Hispanics, black, brown people, around the same. Our dollars go less because everything in our neighborhoods costs more. There are Dollar Generals popping up everywhere in the black community because Kroger's is closing in the black community. Pastor Mike, you and Adam and others tried to answer that on your side of town with a, with a grocery store. I know y'all didn't come for this, but you're in my house. <laughs> Many of our communities are food deserts. Kids can get Twinkies and Mountain Dew, 
but they can't get vegetables. So I, I take seriously um, helping our people develop economically. And uh, so we um, partnered um, with um, Dave Ramsey for about seven years, and we gave away, um, was six weeks of, um, what's the name of the school that he does? <coughs> FPU, Financial Peace University. Hundreds of our members have gone through it, gotten their credit together. There's, there's a brother, and he is a brother to me, um, Buster Sores, who's doing Say Yes to No Debt, which is African-American emphasis on debt freedom. So we do a lot here. We, we call ourselves the city, not to brag. But because like New York, my city of nativity, we never close. We're always open. We're feeding seniors. We're giving out groceries. We have pickleball in this very room. We partner with Millennium, which is our school here on our property. We built housing. We have everything. We have a health clinic. All 124 acres, and I probably need 30 more for all the vision that I have. But we have a church, we have a school, we have housing, we have a health clinic. We minister to the total person. So on the day of my apostiothis, uh, when um, they gather to send me home, hopefully from this place, hope my legacy will be not just a good preacher, but a good pastor. Not just to this flock, but to this city. Uh, to call us back to what I believe God wants us to be. What the prophet Amos said, let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good? Micah 6 and 8. What does the Lord require of thee? But to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. If we do that, uh, then whatever the preacher says about me on that day won't really matter because my epistles will be the people whose lives I touched. And that's what will really matter. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let's give us, let's thank Bishop Clark. Let's, let's bless the Lord for this man of God and his 40 years. And, and, and. That, that, the great thing about today is that you'll be able to say when you come back for the fifth decade, you'll be able to say, I was here when, when he talked about the, <laughs> you were here for that moment when he talked about those four years when we come back for the fifth one. So let, let's bless the Lord again for Bishop Clark. Thank him for his time and great Love teaching you, and Tim. wisdom. Appreciate let you. Me, Appreciate um, you. Let me just say how much faith I have in this man, how much I love him and respect him and what he's doing in our city, in our community, in our state. We're blessed to have Tim Brown, and uh, he means the world to me. I'm honored to be his pastor, and uh, I love him greatly. I love him greatly. I love him greatly. If you enjoy our show, please share this podcast with your family and friends. Be a Baller podcast is available on all major podcast stations. 
Be sure to come back next week as we continue to discuss on how to build a lifelong legacy. Until then, don't forget to be a baller. This podcast was created by Coach Tim Brown. It was edited by Teron Howell and produced and recorded by the video production class of Worthington Christian High School.